On today's episode, we have a pro runner spotlight with Jared Ward. Welcome to the podcast, helping you train, rehab, and run smarter. When I first started running in my 20s, I knew it would be something I'd be passionate about for the rest of my life. But unfortunately, developing injury after injury disrupted my progress and left me undertrained at the start line on race day. Even with my knowledge as a physio, I still fell victim to the vicious injury cycle and when searching for answers, struggled to decipher between common running myths and evidence-based guidance. That's what this podcast is here to help you with. So join me as a Run Smarter Scholar and let's break the injury cycle by raising your running IQ and achieving running feats you never thought possible. Okay, we have a great episode here. We've got Jared Ward on the podcast. He is a 209 marathoner. He is an Olympian and just full of beans. <laughs> this guy loves talking, loves talking about running. You might notice my voice is almost disappearing at the moment because I've had a whole day of talking, whole day of consults, and then I jump on a call with Jared for an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> and... Um, it was great. It was great to have a talk with him. Uh, we dive into his elements of training, dive into injuries. He's had, they should turn his life into a documentary or a movie or something. Um, the episode did take a bit longer than I thought, but I finish off with a bit of rapid fire about warm-ups, cool-downs, tapers, fueling, pacing, and uh, all that sort of stuff and end up with a great interview. We, we cover so many different things. We even dive a bit into like philosophy and um, mindset, attitude, gratitude, all that sort of stuff. And so it took a lot of turns that I didn't expect, hence why I went a bit longer, but very thankful to Jared and having um, spent some time and diving into his training and his race preparation. So hope you enjoy. You're going to take a lot away from this if you are injured, if you are preparing for a race, if you're preparing for a 5K 10k or marathon you're going to take away a lot from this conversation so let's dive into my chat with jared jared thanks for joining me on the podcast yeah this is a treat (laughs) i'm very very excited to talk to you um about all things running and your personal training and endeavors and all that sort of stuff and for those who aren't familiar with your career so far would you mind introducing yourself um and a bit of a a bit of a uh, intro into sort of your life inside and outside of running. Sure. Yeah, I uh, I try to live my best life across uh, um, a few categories. Uh, my wife and I met in high school on the track team. We have five beautiful kids. They all look like their mom, and <laughs> one on the way. Um, hoping this one looks like me. Not really. I'm. I hope he looks just <laughs> like his mom. Um, and so we're we're blessed with children. I studied statistics at BYU. I taught statistics for a little while. I've taken a break from that because uh, teaching's my hobby, and we have a lot of kids right now. And so I, I think I'll go back to doing that someday again. But right now, I I mostly run and uh, have great training partners. My training partners just ran really really well over the weekend at the Chicago Marathon and. Uh, so we're just kind of rounding into our pre-Olympic trials, um, U.S. Olympic trials cycle. And 
So life's, life's all sorts of good. We have gymnastics meets and football games and soccer games and, uh, and then uh, sleeping, eating, and running. <laughs> Excellent, mate. Well, I can tell you you're very passionate about all of those things. If, um, if you would mind maybe sharing a couple of your running accolades and races and results and those sorts of things over the past couple of years. Sure. I, um, so after high school, I ran at BYU, um, was coached by Coach Eyestone. He's still my coach now. So I graduated from BYU about nine years ago, uh, maybe eight years ago, and I still run for Coach Eyestone. So uh, a lot of life has uh, stayed similar to what it was in high school. Uh, in 2016, I represented the U.S. in the Olympics. Uh, in 2020, um, I had a great training cycle but didn't make the team. And uh, over the last few years, I've run the Boston Marathon a few times and the New York Marathon a few times and um, finished in the top 10 a few times and um, I'm now excited to, uh, to at least stick out one more Olympic cycle and, and try to make that Paris team. Very cool. And um, I think from, from me doing some research, you've ran under two hours 10 for the marathon. Is that right? That's right. My best time comes at Boston, uh, from Boston in 2019. And it was 209.25. Excellent. Wow. Very impressive. Um, and, you know, I guess it's kind of outside the realm to be relatable to a lot of recreational runners that listen to this, but um, <laughs> makes it all the more impressive. Has there been any uh, challenges in ways of like injuries or setbacks or anything like that in recent times? Uh, certainly, yeah. You know, um, it, some of that comes with age. I have to be a little bit more patient than when I was 22, um, 35 now. And so, yeah, I, you know, back in, I would say up through the 2016 Olympics, I think every season in my life through high school, through college and my professional career to that point, every season I got better. Um, and so it was really, and it wasn't without injury. You know, I, I had my fair share of stress fractures and I, you know, I ran on a stress fracture and broke my leg once and, um, you know, some disappointing setbacks, some of them. Um, my fault for not being, well, I guess probably most of them, my fault for not being more careful and listening to my body. Um, but every season I improved. And then at the, in 2016 at the Olympics, I ran on a, um, on stress fractures in my pelvis. So I was, I was injured, but I was fit and I had a great result at the Olympics. I finished sixth. It was, you know, higher than I expected to finish. I was happy. Um, but I was injured, and after I came home from the Olympics, I, you know, I kind of started that journey to figuring out what was going on and getting to the bottom of it, and it really took me two years after that to feel like I was back, and then I, you know, and then after that two years, I've struggled with sporadic hamstring pulls, so, you know, every once in a while, you know, and I, I I think I've gotten better at managing it. I have a great PT um, who uh, does dry needling and soft tissue work and activation, and and my strength training program has changed, and so I've I've done a better job at managing it. But it does seem like um, at least once a year I get a hamstring pull, and it costs me a few months. And so 
uh, yeah, the, you know, the, I think everybody, uh, that, uh, sticks, you know, sticks to, uh, you know, trying to perform in, in probably, uh, any discipline of athletics, uh, and, and is really trying to get the most out of their bodies, probably going to cross the line a few times and end up injured. And, and hopefully we get better at, um, monitoring our own bodies and, um, but I think, you know, the the key, at least for me, has been to continue to work forward. And a lot, and what I mean by that is, a lot of times people get injured, and we have a tendency to either shut down. We we have a tendency to shut down either because of, you know, anxiety for the future, or regret for the past. And it can cripple you thinking all the things that you could have done to prevent the injury or all of the things that are now ruined in the future because of the injury. But uh, neither of those things help you in the moment. And I think that uh, it's been a blessing uh, that I had, you know, good coaches and good performance coaches that sort of helped me uh, realize that, you know, once the leg's broken, the only thing we can do is work to get it better. And so you, mm. you sort of take it from where you're at and move forward. And uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, everybody has setbacks, but, uh, but not everybody responds the same way to them. And, and that's really the thing that we can control. Yeah. So with the 2016 Olympics, you said you were racing injured and end up being a pelvic stress fracture. So was that undiagnosed during the race? And it's only that you found that out after the fact? Yeah, I knew that it hurt <laughs> and I knew something was going on, but I also knew that I could run because I'd been training and, you know, I sort of had this pain and I start running and it warms up and I keep going. And, and I, I had the thought a few times, Hey, I should go get this checked out. But when I was weeks away from the Olympics, I thought it probably doesn't matter what it is. I'm probably going to run. And so mm -hmm. I just tried my best to sort of manage it. And, um, you know, did, did everything I could to keep everything else loose and then ran my race. And then when I got back home, went back to the drawing board and tried to figure it out. Yeah. I have like, I see injured runners all the time, recreational runners. And a lot of times it's soft tissue injuries, tendinopathies, um, plantar fasciitis and those sorts of things. Um, it's only once I start interviewing elite athletes, professional athletes that, you know, stress fractures just seem to be so, so common. Um, have you realized within yourself and within your training and recovery and th those sorts of things, why you seem to have not only a stress fracture, but multiple stress fractures throughout your history? Yeah. Well, and I think I, I don't have as many now maybe as, um, I, or it's a less frequent injury now than it used to be. And the, the trick is when, when, I'm pushing my body at 100%, something is always hurting. It's just, and something's fatigued, and something is probably uh, borderline injured. And the, the art then becomes to understand what you have to worry about and what you don't. And that takes years of individual experience, trial and error. And so for for someone going... 100%, um, 
you know, you're, you're probably going to have to learn through experience on at least a couple of things. And, and you can surround yourself with good people, good coaches, good trainers, and, and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully sidestep some of that. But I think it took me a long time to be able to tell the difference between, oh, that is definitely in the bone and that's, um, you, you know, that's a stress reaction or a developing stress fracture versus um, that's a tired tendon or that's something that's fatigued um, or sore or maybe even a little damaged because um, I, I ran on a different surface or I ran up and down a mountain or I tried out a new style of shoe or uh, it stressed my body a little different. And so um, I think I got a little bit better at self-diagnosing and also, you know, better at keeping my um, my team close to me and having a little bit more open dialogue with coach and PT and everybody on what's hurting and, and what needs attention. Yeah. I, I, co- I constantly think about when you operate at such a high mileage, you sort of, you have no choice but to flirt with the boundary lines of overload and just pushing the limits, testing your body out and pushing it to the max and seeing what you can get away with. And it just means that there's very little wiggle room to then tip you over the edge into an overloaded state. And you really need to pay very close attention to intensities, volumes, recoveries, all those elements. Um, And if there's something that does tip you over the edge, it could be outside of your control. It could be stress or sleep or nutrition or something that's like once you get to the the tip of that pyramid it's just a very very fine edge that you need to balance yeah absolutely yeah there's the that i've i've um i've often joked that i could be you know 95 percent of the athlete that i am and it would only take 20 hours a week and i could eat whatever i want and go to sleep whenever i want and it would just be training at you know 80 percent and um, but when you're going, you know, when you go for that last 5%, it really does demand, it demands a lot. You, you put yourself on the edge and then you have to double down on um, on your nutritional efforts and your sleep efforts and uh, your exercises and your gym time and uh, blood flow and recovery and massage and uh, all these things that uh, take time. And But they're, they're important when you're going for that last percent. Yeah. I'm curious because you did mention um, you in the early days you were getting better season after season after season and now 35 and the I'd be curious to know where you feel like you are right now in terms of how fit you have been in the past. Do you feel like you're close to that now or do you feel like it's you're um, sort of surpassed that? Like how do you find it? Depends on which side of the bed I wake up on. <laughs> okay so it's variable <laughs> that's right yeah it just you know it depends I guess not I mean I can assess my current level of fitness you know I'm at um you know I'm I'm better than I was in college but not as good as I was at my peak in probably 2019 I think was about uh, it was about my current peak I had a peak in 2016 and then maybe a higher peak in 2019 um and, you know, I guess so, I, I know where I'm at now, but I guess what uh, what changes sort of day to day is, do I think that my best days, uh, my most competitive days are in my rear view mirror or still out in front of me? And, um, 
happy that at least over the last couple of weeks, I really believe they're out in front of me. And uh, I'm not there yet, uh, but I have probably the, the two best marathon training partners in the country and uh, was able to do a training cycle with them or at least a partial training cycle with them last season. Um, I had my race earlier and I was a half step behind them, um, but I went to Berlin and I ran fine. Um, I ran 211 and, and was, was happy with my performance. These guys went to Chicago and ran the fourth and seventh fastest times by an American ever. And so these guys are the right guys to be training with. It was motivating to see what they could do with a training cycle that came together just right. And I felt like I was on the cusp of, um, of being able to handle the volume and intensity that these you know, these guys that are a decade younger than me are handling. And so um, I think they're ahead of me, and you know, I hope to find them in the next three or four months before the Olympic trials. Very cool, mate. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what develops. And I wouldn't mind if, if, if you don't mind maybe sharing your training structure. Like what does, your, what does your week look like in terms of training? Do you have any particular structure? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I mentioned that I work with my college coach still, and uh, Coach Eyestone is very um, kind of blue-collar, old-school approach, and so um, we don't get too cute with, um, you know, different styles of training and, and workouts and things. We kind of stick to the basics, and so my, uh, my volume is 100 to 120 miles a week when I'm preparing for a marathon, and it's probably more like you know 90 to 100 miles a week when I'm not in a marathon build. Uh, we work out Tuesday, Thursday, and then long run Saturday, and then I take Sundays off. So most days I'm running twice a day. I have a longer session in the morning, and then sort of a double, um, shorter, easier kind of blood flow session in the afternoon. Uh, and then on Saturday, we lump those two sessions together for a long run and just run once. And then I take Sunday off and start it over again the next week. And those Tuesday, Thursday workouts, uh, you know, one is going to likely be a little bit more tempo based. And then one is going to be a little more speed based. So we'll be doing, you know, for tempo, we'll be doing either, a, you know, five or six or seven mile tempo. Or if we're getting ready for a marathon, maybe a 10 or 12 mile marathon pace tempo or longer intervals. Two mile intervals, uh, that's my favorite workout. Three mile intervals um, or like, you know, something that's shorter, like maybe Ks. We'll do, we'll do K repeats on the grass, but we'll keep the rest really short. So maybe I'll do 10 or 12 Ks at like a tempo pace on the grass with 60 seconds rest. Um, and so that style, and then on our speed days, we'll be on the track. So we'll be doing 1600 meters or 1200 meters or 800 meter repeats on the track or some combination of those and working on um, improving VO2 max and oxygen, if you know, oxygen uptake. And so, um, so in, in, in a nutshell, we're working on you know, on those track days, we're working on the engine size and trying to get a bigger, stronger, better, you know, engine in terms of power. And then on the tempo days, we're working on engine efficiency. And so dialing back the intensity, but but really working on uh, oxygen transport and, and, you know, keeping, you know, keeping the heart rate um, where it needs to be. And, and Coach Eyestone is just very, you know, 
he he really keeps it to that. So in you know in a world where it seems like we look around and and uh, sometimes it seems like coaches are trying to do cute stuff with workouts, um, not not Coach Eyestone style. Yeah. So would you try and aim for one speed session per week, one sort of tempo session per week, and then you know alongside your doubles and your rest days and everything like that, it sort of just all builds out to eventually reach around about a hundred miles per week. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so, and the, in the long run, we'll keep that pace that I would still call it a recovery pace, but it will be a little more assertive. So that Saturday long run tends to be, you know, almost a third workout of the week. You know, I do put some emphasis in that, but you know, as I've, as I've gotten older too, um, you know, something that I've had to respect is that, you know, workout every other day uh, can be tough on my body. And so occasionally I have to say, okay, this is a Thursday workout and I either got to, I either got to scratch it for this week and just get ready for Saturday, or we got to dial back the intensity and, and just get kind of like a medium workout in. Um, but I think, you know, some of that comes with experience and, and, uh, and listening and learning your body. And, and so, um, not everybody's the same and, and certainly a lot of pros, uh, that I spent time with work on longer day, longer cycles, you know, a nine day cycle with two days of rest and, um, that type of thing. And, and so in the coach I stone cycle, the, the easy days really have to be easy. You can't, can't get out there and, and push Wednesday or, um, between recovering from Tuesday and getting ready for Thursday, it's just going to be just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. In uh, a little bit of hurt on Thursday. So it, mm. it does take taking the easy days a little bit easier. And how long would your long run get as you're approaching a marathon? How in terms of distance or minutes, uh, how, how big are we talking? Uh, we tend to alternate between about, uh, 30k and 40k, uh, week to week when I'm getting ready for a marathon. So we might have, and, and maybe it's more like 30 to 35k and then 40k. Uh, so, you know, in the, you call it a shorter session, it's maybe two hours and, and coach would be more inclined to, um, sticking a sort of a tempo session in some of the later miles of that run, just to, um, just to simulate sort of that feeling at the end of a marathon when your legs are tired, you know, hitting that pace. And then in the longer sessions, it's maybe closer to two and a half hours and it's, it's more about time on feet and, um, and adding, adding to that weekly volume. Right. Do you find time to strength train or do any other cross training? Yeah, I love, uh, I love the exercise bike. Um, so that's kind of my time in my basement. I, um, I like to spend a couple hours a week on that and, uh, you know, plug into an audio book or a podcast or, uh, or, you know, wedge my phone in between my handlebars and watch an episode of Seinfeld or something. Um, so I, I do enjoy getting on the exercise bike and, um, and I probably strength train twice a week. Uh, sometimes early in the season I'll, I'll get three times a week in, but, um, 
and that I think keeps me healthy. If I want to keep my hamstrings healthy, I got to keep them strong. And so, I you know the strength training is um, is lunges or deadlifts or squats, and and I like to lift heavy. I'm I'm lifting for activation. It's not um, it's not for a range of motion. It's to get the weight heavy enough that all of my fibers have to fire. Um, this seems to be uh, better research kind of in the in the recent decades that endurance athletes benefit in terms of efficiency from lifting heavy and heavy's relative i'm not lifting a lot of weight i'm just lifting heavy for me but when you get down into a squat and and your body is loaded then and you have to use everything you got to get that bar back up it demands that muscle fibers have to fire even the ones that sort of fall asleep as we're running at a submaximal pace for miles and miles on end. And so uh, for me, a big part of lifting has been some of those power lifts. And I'll do Olympic lifts too. You know, I'll do a hang clean or a snatch. Um, some of those power lifts uh, have really helped. And then I have to spend some time on my hamstrings. I love Nordic curls. Um, I have a Nord board in my basement, takes up a ton of room, but I use it, <laughs> you know, three times a week and, and it's been great. And so I spent some time on that and, and some other hamstring strengthening exercise to keep my hamstrings healthy. Cool. I'd be curious to know, say, if you do lunges, um, how heavy are we talking? And like, is it close to body weight? Is it under body weight? Um, what are the sets, sets and reps like? Those sorts of things. Yeah, so if I'm if I'm deadlifting, um, I'm uh, over 200 pounds. Uh, if I'm squatting, I'm just under 200 pounds. And if I'm lunging, um, I'm you know over 100 pounds, but maybe not a, maybe not a lot over. If I was a smart, you know, I, I teach statistics, and so I should be better at this. But if I was smarter than I was I, than I am, I'd give these all weights in kilos. Um, <laughs> you know, hopefully, hopefully our listeners are smarter than I am. Most of the listeners are US based anyway, so oh, perfect. it's going to fit in well. Yeah. <laughs> and what about sets and reps? Like a lot of times, like I am such an advocate for heavy strength training for even just recreational runners or any runner wanting to improve. Is there, there's a, um, a question I get asked a lot of, okay, how heavy should we be lifting? And is there, when it comes to, working towards the end of that set should we be like having a couple of reps in reserve like what should it feel like getting to the end of that set with something so heavy do you have a, a fair indication with your body of um how much you're willing to push it that's a you know that that's a great question and i would say you know my first caution is um we don't want anyone to get injured and so you know i my feeling would be to say you know if if your form's breaking down, if you're getting some back pain as you're doing these things, um, if, if it's feeling um, strenuous in a dangerous sense, then let's, let's build a little slower and let's make sure we got that, the mechanics right before, uh, before we you know, go to failure in terms of uh, our bigger muscle groups. Um, I don't, you know, I can't even remember the last time I had to drop a weight. And so, um, so I would say that's probably a pretty good indicator that I'm not going to a hundred percent because I I just don't cross that line very often. 
um, maybe maybe I'm thinking you know one more rep in the tank kind of mentality and and that's sort of Coach Eyestone's rule of thumb for interval training too. He'll say um, you know if we f- if we finish an interval and we want one more, um, we're pushing Coach for more work. Uh, what he needs to hear is, I think I could do two more, and then he'll give us one more. He always wants to stop us with one more in the tank. Um, and, and so I don't know, maybe that's just you know an ironic crossover between the weightlifting too, but I, I guess thinking about it, that's probably how I'd approach it. I really like sets of about five. I probably cycle that a little bit earlier in the season. Sets are a little bit higher as I'm working on um, actually building some resiliency for the weight room. And then mid-season and late-season, reps are lower, um, you know, even down to th- sets of three or even sets of two towards the end of the season, and I'm really, you know, pushing the weight. But but I have not only the, the base fitness from my running training, I've got, you know, a couple months of base fitness from lifting where, where I've done a little bit of uh, what I would call higher rep and and prepared for that, you know, high weight, low rep sort of lifting towards the end of the season and but I I don't feel like I'm at my best um until I'm lifting heavy and so I I really feel like I need those heavy squats those heavy deadlifts to to feel powerful and at my best and tends to reflect with the research as well there's um a large systematic review that looked at okay strength training for runners yes the heavier the better and um when compiling some of these studies it seems that those who lift at a weight that's less than their four rep max, which is really, really heavy stuff, um, seems to be better than those who lift like lighter than that. So like, you know, like an eight rep max or something like that. But I think when combining all of those studies, there's very, very few studies that actually take someone that heavy. So when compiling all the evidence together um, in terms of like the sample sizes and those sorts of things, it's very limited in terms of people lifting that heavy but good to know that um you're sort of implementing and appreciating how heavy that can be but i think the listeners need to know that you need to be very very experienced to lift this heavy even if you're doing sets of five um and then feeling like you only have one or two reps left in you that is very very heavy but we're talking like years of experience in the gym to eventually get to that level of um that heaviness and, you know, appreciating how much your muscles need to work with that particular weight. Yeah, sure. And I, you know, and I think for, for a listener that say, um, wants to implement the heavy lifting, wants to get there, wants the results now, but, but maybe feels like, um, you know, some more experience in the weight room with, with free weights, um, would be beneficial to get there. I would, I would suggest a hybrid approach of, um, of free weights and machines, you know, do, do, you know, your, your squats with, you know, with the, with the barbell and, and work on that mechanics and that form and, and watch videos and, and, you know, consult who you need to, um, and, and really work on getting that form right. And then, you know, the next week go to the gym and use a leg press and, and feel free to, you know, to push yourself to that, you know, near, you know, near failure on the leg press, um, but in a situation that's, that's maybe, you're not as likely to injure yourself. And um, I, I do think, you know, implementing machines, I, I like free weights, I, I like that, um, 
you know that we're spending a little bit of time on stabilizer muscles and some other things I think there's some benefits to that and and that's how I that's just what I feel um, but I, I do think there's a place for machines in especially if you you want the benefits of heavy lifting but um, don't feel like you're quite ready for it with free weights because like you said we are not wanting you to get injured and there's ways we can sort of mitigate that while you're learning the foundations and yeah leg press machine is just a, a safer way to do it. it takes out a lot of risk and you know sometimes it's hard to get a runner to buy into the okay let me do strength training because sometimes they don't like doing it and if they start doing it and after one or two months they get injured because of it it's going to be very hard for for people to adhere to such a, a structure they don't like in the first place and that's get making them injured so right. hard to get that buy-in Let's talk about your recovery strategies because, as we mentioned, pushing very high volumes, getting you know to the tip of that spear and sometimes uh, trying to work out the balance between load and recovery. A lot of these injuries are due to overload and some might argue it's those overloaded structures and injuries can be significantly reduced if our recovery is enhanced. Therefore, we can't overload ourselves if we're pushing our recovery to the maximum. Do you um, spend much time on that? Do you focus on any particular strategies to enhance your recovery? Absolutely. And, you know, I think you hit it right on the head, um, sort of summarizing it there, Brody, is I, I work with a physical therapist named Scott McKeel um, with uh, Intermountain Health in Utah here. And he's he's always emphasizing that there's a load versus capacity balance that has to be maintained and we increase our capacity as we build and make adaptations but when our load versus capacity gets too out of balance that's when we risk injury and so we have to let our body adapt and and I almost look at it as like a you know like a like it is a balancing act if you're going to you know if you're going to say hey you know I've run healthy and maintained a certain level of vo weekly volume, but I want to increase it, then I encourage uh, listeners to say, okay, I'm going to increase volume. What am I going to increase um, in terms of my ability to recover from that volume? Because now I'm throwing something out of balance. So am I going to sleep more? Am I going to eat better? Am I going to include... Um, you know, massage therapy or rolling out or compression boots or, you know, what am I going to do to offset that, you know, load versus capacity? And, and um, that's when it really starts to take, you know, to take extra time. If you're running it, you know, and we're all different, but, you know, if we're running at a um, at an equilibrium, you know, that we can just get up and, and jog in the morning and then live the rest of our life. And, you know, it amounts to whatever, 35 miles a week. Um, you, maybe you don't have to focus on a lot of other things in order to maintain that and stay healthy with it. But you want to double that, uh, you know, it's probably going to take more, more time you know, the, the, you double the volume, that's going to take some more time, but it's going to even take more time than that in terms of what you're doing to affect recovery and, and balance and sleep uh, to make up for that. And so the closer and closer you get to that line you referred to, um, the, the more, you know, every additional mile requires exponentially more time uh, invested in into how you're recovering from that.
Yeah. And so what do you invest your time in? Well, uh, I got five kids, and so I get really good at uh, creating the games that give me the recovery that I need. <laughs> Dad walks home and, you know, becomes a, you know, a grab my kids and chase them into a pillow game and lay on the couch. My wife's a massage therapist, and, and she <laughs> can, you know, she's always happy and game to push on whatever's sore. Um, I think one of the biggest things is getting good sleep and getting... Um, getting enough sleep. And so making that a priority, um, you know, cutting out the, the late night Netflix or, or, um, you know, those other, uh, things like that do make a difference. And then nutritionally, um, one of the biggest things, uh, for me that's made a difference in terms of being able to add volume is fueling immediately following running. So I'm, I'm almost obsessive about having hydration um, and you know some sort of snack like in my car to eat as soon as the training session's done. Sometimes my training partners even give me a hard time for like we'll finish an interval workout and I'm eating before the cool down because I want that nutrition in me uh, helping me recover. And when I started doing that in college, I just felt like it changed the way that I felt when I went out later that day for a double session or got up the next day and went for a run. I think the biggest, the biggest thing that I did was trying, you know, making a habit to get fuel in within 30 minutes of finishing a training session. And then I also have had good success with consuming protein at night. Uh, when I get in the middle of a marathon training session, I'll oftentimes wake up at three o'clock in the morning just so hungry. And um, that affects my ability to sleep and get recovered. And so I've started uh, consuming protein at like 9 or 10 at night right before I go to sleep. And that seems to, there's, there seems to be a little bit of research on how the, the blood has a little bit more amino acid activity in the morning after consuming protein at night. And we assume that translates to maybe being a little bit more recovered or the body has the toolkit it needs to recover. And so I think it, it helps maybe in terms of uh, muscle damage and recovery, but it also just keeps me from waking up starving in the middle of the night. And so I get to sleep a little bit better. And so uh, those are two uh, nutritional things that I, I have emphasized. I love sitting in my rapid reboot compression boots. And so um, I'll come up here in my office in this chair and I'll, you know, I'll lay back and pull my boots on and um, get my stuff done on the computer while, while I have the compression boots um, pushing on my legs. Uh, heat and ice, uh, I think, can help. Um, you know, jury's sort of out on, on um, you know, if they increase the speed of recovery, but they certainly help me feel better. And so I, you know, I'm not... Um, uh, not above like you using heat and ice to feel a little, you know, sitting in a warm tub and warming up for a session and, um, you know, jumping in a cold plunge or, or icing after. And so I, I guess I'm a little old school that way, but I, I definitely still use ice and, and heat to, as part of that recovery process. Nice. I, back to your point about the enhancing your recovery or finding out ways you can improve your recovery as you're building on mileage. I often think about this question when a runner comes to me and says, I'm just not cut out for a marathon. I can do all these half marathons, but as soon as I train for a marathon, my body breaks down, I get this injury, I get, you know, 
X, Y, Z, and they they just convince themselves, I'm just not cut out for that type of mileage, always makes me beg the question, okay, well, first of all, how are you training? How are you jumping from half marathon to marathon? Are they sensible increments? But also, are you just keeping the same old recovery habits that you didn't think was an issue or you haven't identified as an issue when you had such low mileage. People think they get enough sleep. People think they've got a good diet. People think that they hydrate themselves accordingly and they probably do with a low mileage. But when those when that mileage builds up and they keep to their old habits, maybe that increases that risk of overtraining, under-recovering, and it's just not something they recognize because they're fine in that those low mileage states, if that makes sense. I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and further, um, if you can run a half marathon, I think you can run a marathon, you know, it, it might be hard and it might take some time, but you know, some of the best advice I've, I've received from, um, you know, the runners that I've idolized that, you know, Meb and Ryan Hall and, and Abdi, these, these kind of, um, uh, you know, runners that I've looked up to through my career is to be patient. Let the, let the fitness come to you. And, and sometimes I think where we run into trouble and, and certainly risk of injury goes up is when we feel this sense of urgency, like I have to get fit now. And so we do things uh, that maybe we wouldn't otherwise do. We force it right? Ah, I don't feel good today, but I got to get this workout in. Or ah, my legs are kind of tired, but I can't afford to take a break on mileage, so I got to force it. And when we force it, uh, we get fit. I, I really don't think that marathon training and half marathon training has to be that different. Marathon training just has a longer runway. So, you know, if, if you've had success with the half marathon and you've trained for three months and gotten ready and run a good half marathon. Well, don't look at a marathon build like a three month build. Look at it like it's a five or a six month build and do the same things. Make the first three months of that build the exact same as your half marathon build and then go into the phase where, you know, we just add a mile or a couple kilometers every, you know, every weekend to our long run. And, you know, if it's just, if it's about completing a marathon, I don't think you have to do anything more than that to be ready to go. Get ready for a half, do everything you do, but give yourself an extra couple of months to then add just a little bit a little bit more volume. And it doesn't even have to be across the whole week. It doesn't have to be across your workouts. I think, you know, if we're adding volume just on that weekend long run, you know, for me, it's that Saturday long run. Uh, I think you can get ready for a marathon. Yeah. Jared, I don't know if you know this, but... <clears throat> We have a podcast listener who is a massive super fan of yours. And um, she took a photo of me with you the other day, Tasha, and she sent it over to me. And I have met her in in Chicago, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have um, some patrons and I like to ask if they have any questions for you. And I usually, you know, assign maybe two or three per guest. And Tasha asked seven questions for me to tell you. And I said, I don't have enough time for all of those things. Um, But I do have one. And I would like to ask Tasha's question. She asks, how are you able to stay at such an elite level for such a long period of time? What are your secrets? Um, Could be something you've already mentioned on the podcast already, but uh, what do you have for Tasha? Oh, Tasha, you know, we had a great chat in, uh, in kind of the, the finish line party area of the Chicago Marathon and talked about life balance and kids. And um, so, hey, Tasha. Uh, but, 
you know, in terms of competing at a high level for a long time, I think um, the, f the first thing is run the mile you're in. I, you know, we can psych ourselves out with this idea that, you know, in, that we have to do something for forever. Um, you know, parenting is a good example of that. You know, so how many parents out there have been wrestling with a two-year-old and thought, I, you know, how am I going to do this for the next X number of years? I can't even make it through today. Uh, we don't have to make it through the next number of years right now. We just have to make it through today. And I think creating that mentality of, yes, I'm planning for the future and I'm living from the past and I'm, I'm planning for the future and I'm learning from the past but I'm living in the present and I'm doing everything I can right now to, um, to get myself to where I want to be, but I'm not worried about whether or not I'm going to get there or how I'm going to get there or how long it's going to last or what's going to happen. I'm just controlling today because today is the only thing I have the power to control. And, um, and I think that has benefited me. The second thing I would say is be positive with yourself. Runners, we, we're a, um, we're an incredibly loyal group of people, and uh, and it and are we're great friends, but sometimes we are so dang hard on ourselves, and I think sometimes that comes with Type A personalities and um, you know the just sort of what lending what runners sort of lend themselves to, um, but man, it, you know if if we're hard on ourselves every time we finish a run, every time we finish a race. Um, it just creates a pattern of um, anxiety and insecurity, and one of the biggest um, one of the biggest pieces of advice that I got from um, sports psychologist and his name was Craig Manning changed my world. Was he said, Jared, we're going to emphasize the good, and I need you after every workout and after every race to write down three things you did well. And he encouraged me to do that before I even considered one thing that I wanted to do better next time. And Brody, it changed my self-confidence because after a season of racing as a sophomore in college, instead of having 10 races, probably on paper, eight of them weren't as good as I, and I had a good season, but, but again, runners are hard on themselves. So probably eight of my races were like, I, I wouldn't have considered them as good as I wanted. And if I had just continued in my pre-Craig Manning advice of be positive through that season, I would have looked back on the season, you know, and, and been wrapping up the season and, you know, headed to nationals or whatever and thought, oh man, I guess I've had 10 races, two of them were good, hopefully nationals is another good race. And that's about where my confidence level would be. But because of this approach from Craig Manning and I was writing down three things from every race that I did really well, by the end of the season, I had a list of 30 things that I was good at. And of course, I'd never put together all of those 30 things in the same race, but I had emphasized them, and to me, they were part of who I was. I can start well, I can cover moves well, I can push in the middle of the race, I can finish strong, I can hydrate well, I can fuel. All these things that uh, I had done, I'd emphasized, and I was so much more confident. And I think if you want to have you know, a, a long, happy, successful career, and, and this can apply to, to, any, to other aspects of life too, we've got to become better at giving ourselves credit for the things that we're doing well. And as we get better at doing that, we are going to become more productive 
happy, confident individuals because we'll be focused on the good. And if you want to keep doing it, you got to be focused on the good. Yeah, that is such gold. And I'll, I'll tag on that and say that's a skill. Like some people find it really, really hard to focus on some positives and it's it is a muscle that takes time to build. And then all of a sudden with enough practice, with enough repetition, it's really, really easy to think of all and identify all those good things. And I'll point towards those who are injured as well. Do that exact same thing, especially when it comes to the present being present, because if you're injured, a lot of people focus on the past, what races they were doing, what went wrong, a misdiagnosis, seeing the wrong doctor, getting the wrong scans. And they really tend to amalgamate in those sorts of things. And when it comes to the future, they stress. They're like, I've got a race coming up or I I don't think I'll be able to do this race. I don't think I'll ever get back to high mileage again or those sorts of things. If you focus on what you can do today, whether that's a walk run, whether that's a rehab exercise, whether that's a learn another skill, uh, learn to, you know, find another cross training alternative that you enjoy, like all those sorts of things. Like you can really flick a switch and, um, reframe to not only enhance your recovery, but also make the process better. Like your frame of mind and your outlook is a lot better. And if your emotions are in a better state, then, you know, it's a, it's a better experience for, for yourself and everyone around you and actually enhances the, you actually get better quicker. It enhances your recovery. So very, very good tip. Well, and it, yeah, important to remember too, that every, every good inspiring story begins with some conflict. You know, it's, it's, I was in the middle of the race and I didn't know if I could finish and I hit the wall. And then what, what do you say next? And then you know, that's the story. The story starts with that. And it's the same thing with injuries. Ah, I was like on top of my game and then I got a stress fracture and I had to reset. Well, then what? Because if, if we just stop, then the story ends. It dies with this bad experience that we hope to forget. But if we can stay in the present and be productive and move forward from it, then it just becomes a story opportunity. And you're totally right. We can stay in the present. I remember when I when I ran on a stress fracture and broke my leg, it was my last race in college. So I was in the I was in the best shape of my life. I was a senior. I was ready to graduate and I was courting agents and, and ready to run professionally. And then last race of my senior year, my leg breaks. I breaks mid-race and I fall to the ground and uh, finish my season with a broken leg. And I went from thinking, man, I'm going to run professionally, I'm gonna, this is going to be fun, to all of a sudden not a, very line, not a very long line of agents and sponsors ready to pick up the kid on the side of the track with a broken leg. But because I wanted to run so badly and because I'd had the, the coaching and the help to condition, like you said, staying in the present. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not just a decision. It's a muscle. And because I had had two and a half years of muscle training on mentality, uh, I went home and said, hey, um, you know, get this checked out. The doctor says it's broken, needs a cast. And I said, well, can you spin me a waterproof cast? I want to swim on it. He says, sure. And he spins me a waterproof cast. And I go back three weeks later and say, if I promise to wear a boot, will you, except for when I'm biking, will you cut this cast off so that I can bike? I hate swimming and I really just want to bike. And he (laughs) said, sure, and cut it off. And I biked. And... Even stuff like I would come home and I remember coming home and just seeing 
raisins in everything, like all sorts, in, in everything my wife was making. And I was like, babe, what's up with all these raisins? And she's like, well, I read online that raisins help bones grow back faster. <laughs> and Brody, I have no idea if raisins have any correlation to bones growing back faster. But I can tell you, every time I was eating raisins, I was like, my bones are growing back right now as I eat these raisins. And that is productive. It's channeling the energy forward and controlling what I can control and uh, and improving that way. And I, I ran the U.S. Championships Marathon probably 18 weeks after breaking my leg, and I finished second. And as a recently graduated kid from high school with two young kids, I won more money than I ever thought, and it wasn't even that much money, but I won more money than I ever thought I'd see in my life. And, um, you know, it kick-started a sort of semi-professional running career. But, you know, the reason it's a fun story and it's a good story is because I'd invested the time to become productive, you know, lit, productive at those things, living in the moment and being positive. And, uh, and then it, you know, proved an opportunity. I think you need to think about what actor is going to play you in this movie that you've just, you've just, um, <laughs> battled out there because that that's movie quality. Well, we'll need you plenty in of lessons too. in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll have to have a think about it as well. <laughs> I want to get your tips on recreational runners who want to improve. I want to actually start with those who want to get a better 5k. If someone really wants to improve and they want to dedicate themselves to this, uh, what are your tips for someone who really wants to get the best out of it, run their fastest 5k? Well, if you want to find your fastest 5k, you've got to train for a little beyond that distance. Um, you know, if, if you're training for your fastest 5k, I'm going to assume you've run some 5k's, you, you're comfortable training for a 5k, that volume isn't intimidating to you, you just want to get better. And in assuming you, you feel comfortable at that distance and, and running a 5k is okay, then I'm going to encourage you to train for a 10k. Get a little bit, you know, increase that volume, increase, uh, you know, increase your, your distance in workouts, sometimes, you know, we, you know, a lot of times I feel like we, we look to speed, right? We say, well, we want to run faster, so we need to train faster. But especially as we age, training faster is harder, right? That's why, um, you know, that's why so many power athletes, you know, I'm talking like Olympic sprinters and, you know, football players, these power athletes, they peak very early peaking in their early 20s. Um, running speed is hard on the body. And while I do feel like speed is a part of any training program, and I certainly do my fair share of speed, the aerobic system can improve forever. I really believe that. Eventually, the body can't keep up with it, and, and so our sort of like our ceiling starts to lower on us. Uh, but we can continue to push closer and closer to that ceiling by working on our aerobic ability. And so my feeling is you want to run a faster 10K, start training for, or run a faster 5K, start training for a 10K and, and worry a little bit less about um, always trying to go faster. Okay, faster is going to help. That's the engine size. But if we can increase engine efficiency, and sometimes for a lot of us, especially again as we age, increasing engine efficiency proves a little bit easier. 
run a run an extra mile do an extra interval don't worry about it being faster but just get a little bit further and as we get further our body will make adaptations and it will be easier to run faster do you have like a a bit of a guideline if someone had a 5k race in their calendar if they wanted to do a 10k race and follow these instructions like how many weeks or so before an event might might be a, a suitable appropriate time frame yeah i think you know I, so I, I, if i was programming a season around running running a, a really good 5k at the end of the season i might build to be ready for a good 5k and may, maybe even overtraining it a little bit in terms of distance, right? And then run a 10K. And then, um, oh, three or two or three or four weeks, call it two to four weeks later, I'd actually run something a little shorter and a little faster. So going from, okay, I'm, I'm going to run something, you know, I'm training for a 5K, but I'm going to race first a 10K, and then a couple weeks later, I'm going to run like a mile or a two-mile type, you know, 3K uh, race, and then two weeks after that, I'm going to run my 5K. And I think some of that um, periodization, and it, it's not, you know, it's not out of line with, with what, a, what a lot of what I would call the training um, you know, training philosophy and, and really our, our training philosophy in this sport are, are a, a handful of experts that have had good success with training. And, it, and some of it's loosely backed by science, but the training models largely aren't built around science. It's um, something that science seeks to support. But these training programs do a lot of that. If you're training for this distance, you do some intervals longer and slower, you do some intervals shorter and faster, and then you do some intervals right at training pace. And I think we can do the same thing with our racing schedule if we're really trying to maximize our performance at a certain race. That's very cool. Yeah, it's almost like you're becoming resilient and becoming really uncomfortable or getting comfortable with really different races. And you're sort of, uh, but when it comes to race day, you've sort of built this versatility based on all the variety that you've offered it. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. Well, can we shift gears now to the marathon? Cause I do have another question for you. If someone wanted to really knock it up a notch and train with the goal in mind to get a sub three marathon, um, that seems to be like a very, very tough goal that you really need a lot of commitment towards um if someone had that goal what would be your tips to increase the odds to achieve that well good question and again i'm going to assume that if you're asking the question of how can i maximize marathon performance or how can i break three hours in a marathon that you are a marathoner you you've trained for and completed a marathon you know how to get yourself to the start line able to finish the marathon and and given that you've had success um, you know building that long run up and completing the marathon uh, the next thing that I'm gonna say to add is some level of workouts and you know in a in a similar sense we now when we're training for a marathon we can't really do that same uh, 5k approach of running run a distance that's longer and then run a distance that's shorter and then race the marathon right we're not gonna you know I don't I don't think it's the, the best way to get ready for a marathon probably isn't going and finding a 50k or something like that but um, we're going to do that in training 
We're going to have some running that's slower than marathon pace. We're going to have some running that's faster than marathon pace. And then we're going to have some running at marathon pace. And we're going to build that into our training program. But if you were going to add just one workout to a training program to increase your odds of having a personal best day in the marathon, to me, that would be adding a few marathon pace miles late in a long run. So when we get out there and we're going on a weekend long run, getting ready for a marathon, uh, most of us aren't running marathon pace in that long run. Okay, if you can run marathon pace in your long run, I've got a news flash for you. You've got a PR in you. Because, you know, when I go out for a 20-mile long run, there is no way I can run that 20-mile long run at marathon pace in the middle of training. There's just, there's no way. I, I'm struggling to and clawing for like a 13-mile or 14-mile marathon pace tempo in the middle of a training block when I'm getting fit um, at marathon pace. I can only run marathon pace for a marathon after getting really fit and then resting for two weeks, getting ready for that marathon, and then getting ready for a big push on one day. And so to me, one of the biggest pieces of my marathon training program is building up that volume into those long runs. So that takes takes starting a marathon training cycle a little bit fitter because we got to get up to those two hour, two and a half hour, maybe even three hour long runs with enough time left that we can still train. And then we're adding on, you know, and, and then we got another month of training where in those long runs, we're hitting a few miles late in the long run at goal marathon pace. So in an 18 mile long run, that might look something like I'm going to run the first 14 miles at 30 to 60 seconds per mile slower than marathon pace. And then when I hit mile 14, I'm going to go three miles at marathon pace. And then I'm going to cool down for a mile or something like that. And I just think that when you're at the end of a long training week, um, you're tired, you're getting out there for your long run, you're working on your fueling, you're, you, you know, we're emphasizing the long run. I think the long run is the most critical component of training for a marathon. Um, and then we get late in that long run and we do some miles at marathon pace. I think that just, you know, simulates how am I going to do this on tired legs? Very cool. And almost, like you say, simulates. It's like at the end of a marathon, you're trying to maintain a certain pace that's really hard to do. And your body's going to be saying, stop, slow down. Uh, we're not cut out for this. But if you sort of mimic that, you've got all this mileage from your training week all the way from Monday to Friday. And then you've had 14 miles in you. And then you have to run at marathon pace, it sort of simulates that at, at a very similar degree, um, not only to get your body used to it, but almost to get your brain used to it as well, to not like freak out at that level of tiredness or that level of fatigue and um, help you achieve that. I think it's a really good tip. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I have, I'm very conscious of time. I have a few questions I'd like to ask you and I, um, if you wanted to just give me a 30 second answer to it, I'd be um, really appreciative of that. So Great. if you have a marathon, if you've, let's just say you, you go to the start line, you've got 10 minutes before an Olympic event, um, marathon, how would you warm up? 
10 minutes before. So 10 minutes I've already Or you got... can say like half an hour beforehand okay. or like approaching. What would your warm-up yeah. routine be? So my warm-up routine is about a 5 to 10 minute jog um, just to get blood flow. And then I'm taking a little bit more fuel um, because again, you know, a marathon, a big big component of the marathon is getting enough carbohydrates in you. We're, we're already carb loaded, but I'm still trying to top off every chance I have. So five, 10 minute warm up, top off, get my race shoes on, um, few dynamic movements, maybe some B skips, some A skips, some, you know, some leg swings, and then a couple strides at marathon pace, and then to the start line. You know, the, the marathon warm up is about getting ready to go marathon pace, but not wasting any, any of those glycogen stores that you don't need to. I should have done this chronologically because I wanted to find out like how you structure a taper. So um, maybe we'll, we'll reverse back to a, a couple of weeks and um, ask how you like to structure your taper approaching the marathon. So yeah, my taper, my, my training peaks about four weeks out from a marathon and three weeks out is still um, a, an intense week, but three weeks out that week of training I'll, I'll come down in volume to about 90% of what I've been training. And then two weeks out, that volume drops to more like 60 or 70%. And then the week of the marathon, my volume's like 30%, not counting the marathon. Uh, so, so that last, really the last two weeks feels um, very significant. I'm still doing hard workouts. Uh, three weeks out, and even hard workouts two weeks out, though the volume is coming down, and then week of is nothing really hard. I'll do a set of mile repeats at marathon pace, so you know four by mile at marathon pace with a couple minutes rest in between. It's that's that shouldn't be hard if we're getting ready for um, for 26 continuous, and it really race week it's it's that, and then you know a couple strides at marathon pace, maybe a couple strides a little faster, but um, very, very light the week of. How do you carb load? Do you have a certain amount of days or certain types of food that you like to stock up on? Yes, absolutely. I don't do a, um, a very extreme carb cycle, but I do carb cycle a little bit. And one thing that I think about race week is I'm cutting all this volume out of my running. So what does that mean I should be doing in terms of eating? Well, I, you know, while I, while I want to be, you know, I'm trying to balance this, don't want to gain three pounds right before the marathon, but also want to be fully carb loaded. <laughs> and so I end up um, the week before a marathon, uh, you know, cutting for about three or four days, I cut about half of my regular carbohydrate intake and maintain the protein and fat intake that's normal for me. I'm eating probably 3,500 for 4,000 calories a day, um, sometimes a little higher than that when I'm really in peak training. Um, and so I'm still maintaining the fats and proteins, but cutting the carbs. And then three days before the marathon, I switch that. I throw the carbs back in and maybe even throw in a few extra carbs and then cut the proteins and fats in half. And uh, for the three days leading into the marathon, I err on the side of eating too much. You don't want to start a marathon only 50% carb loaded. It is, it's just not worth it. And you will gain some weight. Carbs store with water. And so I expect to gain two or three pounds of weight as I go from a relatively carbohydrate depleted state four days before the race to fully carbo loaded the night before the race. And if, you, if I've done carbo loading right, 
um, I don't have to overeat the night before a race. I'm already carb loaded, so the night before the race can just be pretty light. I, I like potatoes, so maybe potato and a lean piece of meat and go to sleep. Okay. And the three days before that, are we talking like rice? Are we still eating potatoes? Like what's your, what's your go-tos? Yes, absolutely. So I, yeah, I have Hashimoto's, uh, disease. And so it's a, it's an autoimmune disorder and, and, um, I've experimented on food, trying to figure out if I can find a way to get this autoimmune response to cool off. I haven't had a lot of success with it, but in the process of experimenting on things, um, I've cut out gluten for long periods of time. And while I now eat gluten, I've, uh, I've made different habits. And so I really don't eat as much gluten. I used to go to, you know, the pasta and, and carb load kind of that way, but I really do a lot with potatoes. I eat a lot of potatoes. Um, and I do like rice as well. And so I, I eat a fair amount of rice and, um, and then I'm a snacker. So I'm, I'm snacking throughout the day. It's, it's dried fruit. It's, um, it's, you know, granola bars. Uh, I love oatmeal. So I'm eating oatmeal. Um, I also feel like I, I metabolize fat pretty well, so I'm probably a little heavier in the fat department than most. I'm eating a lot of peanut butter and avocado and, and that type of stuff. And so um, I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy with uh, oatmeal and, and peanut butter and uh, p- baked potato and, and avocado. Excellent. And so I think we've got a good timeline now. So we've got your taper, we've got your carb load, we've got your warm-up, now you're on the start line. How do you pace your marathon? Do you have a certain pace strategy that you like to keep to? Yes. Uh, and it largely depends on training. You know, the, these, these efforts in the middle of long runs at marathon pace really, um, serve to guide me. Okay. Am I, am I running the right pace? And, and, um, early marathon cycles, we're figuring out my body and figuring out training and how I respond to it. But with experience, I get a little bit better at gauging what I'm prepared for. But, but coach and I will create sort of a band of acceptable paces. So, you know, if I think I'm, I'm prepared for a five-minute mile pace, which is a 211 marathon, coach might say, okay, no slower than 505 and no faster than 455 for the first 20 miles. And, um, and we always say 20 miles is halfway. And so in, in my mind, I, I don't hit halfway and I'm not on the other side of the hill until we hit 20 miles. And so I will stick to the plan that I feel like uh, training has indicated I'm the pace that I'm ready for until about 20 miles and then, um, and then go based on feel. But within that acceptable range, that band that I get from coach, I'm listening to my body. And, you know, I got to be going uh, fast enough that I feel like I'm racing and and assertive, but not so fast that I can't drink my fluids and run and, and, uh, you know, certainly can't be in oxygen debt. And so um, sort of uh, uh, balancing, you know, hey, this is the plan and this is what I should be ready for. So trust the body and trust the system with uh, this sort of bubble on uh, how do I feel? Yeah. And fueling during the race, do you have it down to a science? Do you have a certain amount of electrolytes or carb gels or water that you like to consume? I don't know that anyone has it all the way down to a science, but we maybe our art gets a little closer with experience. We're also different, and um, and we, we burn through our stores different. Um, and, and really, it's guesswork to how much uh, carbohydrate we can store anyways. But um, But it seems like... Um, there's sort of a consensus 
<coughs> that we can store maybe uh, 1,600 to 1,800 calories worth of carbohydrate if we're, if we're well-trained. We've been doing our long runs. We've been depleting those stores. We eat a healthy diet. Um, and so if we can store 16 to 1,800 of calories, then the kind of the, the ballpark estimate of we're going to burn through 100 calories per mile would suggest that the average runner needs to consume six to 800 calories during a marathon. And, you know, if we're, if we're you know, and that, again, there's a lot of factors that might affect that, but I, I have had good success um, when I feel like I have consumed over 600 calories of carbohydrates in the, you know, just over two hour um, experience running. And so I'm trying to drink uh, about every 5K, um, and, and the elite athletes are spoiled. We get to put out our own bottles, and they have them in the right spot for us and make it easy to get, and they're easy to drink out of. And so um, so it's not fair, but um, I'm trying to get, you know, call it 100 calories per station and there's eight you know there's eight 5k stations and maybe i won't take the bottle at 40k so maybe that leaves me closer to 700 um but i'm really trying to get at least 100 calories every time i'm drinking or taking a gel very cool and just lastly cool down across the finish line what do you like to do how do you like to celebrate and what do you do to you know in the in the next couple of minutes couple of hours to help you recover well, normally at the end of a marathon, I'm thinking much more celebrate that I'm happy that I made it to the finish line. And, and I think celebrating can be important too. We don't always have to be thinking about what's next. Sometimes we can take a minute and, and uh, soak in uh, what we just lived. So normally I'm, uh, I'm hobbling back to, um, to change my shoes and, and uh, get out of a sweaty pair of shorts and then working my way to uh, the best burger in the city, wherever I'm at. I, I love to <laughs> celebrate with a burger and fries. Excellent. Um, if there's been one theme that's sort of popped up several times in a whole bunch of these different topics, it's you really honing in on listening to your body and making the right decisions based on what your body's telling you. Like I've, I've only just wrote down a few things when it comes to like your fuel, when it comes to your injuries, when it comes to your speed workout, sometimes you might modify a speed workout or remove a speed workout if you're not feeling up to it. Um, the pace of the marathon, all those sorts of things. Um, you seem to be in all these years of experience, just trying to really fine tune what your body's telling you and acting upon that, which I think a lot of, runners, no matter what level they're at, if they just want to become better or just want to run for longevity. Um, it's a, it's a good skill to try and have. And I think it's a, it's very good that it's spread into your practice in, in multiple domains. So it's a really nice um, theme to sort of pick up on and hear you talk about that. Well, you know, I'm, so I'm a, I'm a stats nerd and there's a, there's a type of statistics called Bayesian statistics. And in Bayesian statistics, we have sort of a prior um, distribution or a theory, um, spread, predictor, whatever you want to call it. And then we update that with data. And I feel like for, for a new marathoner, a new runner, you got to stick with what, you know, what the research says. What does the data say? What do the coaches say? What do others with experience say? But the more personal data we have, Every time we run a race or do a workout, we get to add one more of our personal data points that affect that average. 
And for those of us with a lot of experience, um, it essentially ends up being all of our data points that tell the story. And, and we sort of slowly shift to that. So I, I see training and running and adaptation and, um, and our own personal theories as essentially one big Bayesian statistics problem. <laughs> I'm glad we could finish off on that one. Good, good uh, little lesson in statistics. If there's someone who wants to learn more about you, follow your journey, follow your running career and um, those sorts of things, where can they go? Do, are you active on social media? Um, what else can I promote for you? Yeah, I try to stay active on, on Instagram. I'm on Facebook and on Twitter as well. My handles are all jwardy21. Um, but I'd love to hear from you. If you have questions, shoot me a message on Instagram and, and I, I try to get back to those. Excellent. Jerry, this was very insightful. I am very much looking forward to seeing how things develop in the next couple of years and um, what what else you can push out, what else you can accomplish. I think you're you're ticking all these boxes. I think just sharing your insights and taking a look under the hood of how you train and why you race and all that sort of stuff and also a bit of a dive into your life as a, as a dad and as a... Um, teaching statistics and all that sort of stuff has been very, very cool and very insightful. So thanks for coming on and sharing. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks everyone. If you are struggling to overcome an injury, you can jump on a free 20 minute injury chat with me, which you can book through my calendar in the show notes. While you're in the show notes, elevate your running IQ by jumping onto my free email list so you can receive material to help rehab your injury, lower your injury risk and increase your performance. If emails aren't for you, consider my Facebook group, Instagram, and YouTube channels. And remember, each insight you get from these resources brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough.